0: Welcome here as we observe God's Feast of Trumpets. What an amazing blessing, right? People all over this world are just going about their daily lives, not realizing today pictures what is truly the climax of history. Uh, We'll have two messages today uh, in terms of sermons. I appreciate very much the... Sermon at the offertory by Mr. Dumas. I want to know what happened. What happened to Caesar? Does anybody, does anybody know? No, we a lot of us know what happened to Caesar. It was interesting in Rome, do you realize that every, every time the art, the Ides of March come by, I'm not going to spoil it too much, Mr. Dumas, but, uh, there at where Caesar, uh, was, was, uh, was, was buried, was burned, where his body was burned. That every year the Romans, which the people in Rome call themselves Romans, go by and leave flowers uh, there uh, where it is. And so we actually were there in April or so. So it had been about a month and there were still all these flowers that were there. They pay homage to Caesar really every year. It's a it's fascinating. Of course, there is a Caesar coming to whom much homage will be paid. The holy days are a great gift to us. They explain the plan of God We go from beginning to end, right? We start at Passover, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. It's always important for us to be mindful that that is the first step. That if it weren't for Jesus Christ's willingness to die for all of us, nothing else would happen. Nothing else would happen. The Bible says that we love Him because He first loved us. The very first thing that happens in God's plan is that God steps into history for some. And that is us. But then you have to respond to that, right? So the days of unleavened bread picture that response. That in response to that great love and his death for us, we turn away from our sins and we turn toward him. We repent. We decide to put sin out of our lives and begin taking in a new way of life. And that's pictured by the days of unleavened bread. Then you get to Pentecost. The fact that those who obey can have God's spirit. God gives us his spirit which empowers us, which makes us children. Not children born into the world yet, but children conceived in the womb. Not fully looking like our father yet, just like a child in the womb doesn't quite look like mom and dad yet. Unless you look like kind of a bug-eyed, stubby arm, you know, grain of rice or something. You don't look like them yet. But with a conception, there is that promise of delivery, right? There is that expectation Uh, that they will come into the world. So Pentecost, we're given God's Spirit. And then there's this long drought of holy dayless days, right? Where we go through and it's like, what was the next holy day? September. Oh, you know, it just seems like this long period. And that matches what we're living through now, right? All of us long for the days to come that we're talking about today. We're in that long pause, but coming towards its conclusion. And then we come to the Feast of Trumpets. <clears throat> we come to today. And so my message, I want to keep things pretty basic. I do want to talk about the meaning of the day. Sometimes people get upset. It's like, well, we know all of that. But you know what? We don't all know all of that. And those of us who think we know all of that don't always know all of that. And if we don't review all of that. We find that later we definitely don't know all of that because we forget all of that. There's a reason that God gives us the same Holy Days every year. Have you noticed that? He doesn't say, you know, 2015. Oh, man, I've been doing the same Holy Days for thousands of years. I think we're going to start over. We're going to start with, uh, you know, Algebra Day. That would be great. I would really like that. We're going to do a totally different series of Holy Days. Why does he give us the same Holy Days every year? Because we need the same Holy Days every year. We need to review the same fundamental things every year. Many of us know too many people that within a, seems like a span of time, a blink of breath, and they lost what they had. It's too easy. We need to review these things. So today we're going to talk about the meaning of the day and we're going to turn to Leviticus 23. Leviticus, the Holy Days are discussed in a lot of different passages, of course. Leviticus 23 is sort of your one-stop shopping in terms of getting all the Holy Days there. We're not going to look at all of them, just the passage discussing today. Leviticus 23, starting in verse 23, it says, Then the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying... In the seventh month on the first day of the month, that is today in the Hebrew calendar, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. You know, it's really interesting. So many of the days picture obvious things in, in Israel's history. But there's this one day he just says it's a memorial of blowing of trumpets. He doesn't really explain why here in this passage, there's just going to be a day set aside as memorial of the blowing of trumpets. I know when I was very uh, aggressively called into the truth, I I hate to say when I was called into the truth, because you never know when that starts. At least I don't. You always wonder, when did God really start planting uh, seeds? But when I was 14, 15, I began watching uh, the telecast and I ended up getting a booklet about the holy days. It just blew me away because the meaning was so clear. If you look at the holy days, how they corresponded to the acts of God in history was so screamingly obvious. And yet at the same time, I recognized because I was learning that I really wouldn't get it if it weren't for God. None of us can pat ourselves on the back and say, well, yeah, I'm here because I'm really smart and I figured out where the truth was. It's out of God's mercy that all of us sit here today, whether brought in or born in, It's an act of God and it's his mercy. And seeing how a memorial of the blowing of trumpets corresponded chronologically in the plan of God to the blowing of trumpets leading up to Christ's return was amazing. It's a worthwhile study in this season just because today's trumpets at sundown. You don't have to stop studying the topic. Uh, If you look at how trumpets and shofars were used in Israel, it's amazing. You know, They were uh, sounds of alarm. The equivalent of our early warning system, you know, that goes off on noon every month or something like that. But if there's a storm coming or something, it's those huge sirens. Uh, there were calls to war and warnings of war. They would indicate the crowning of royalty. Uh, they were used to indicate the presence of uh, divinity. Uh, that is God's own presence approaching. And we see all those things wrapped up in the Feast of Trumpets. In terms of talking about the meaning of the day, I had a couple of choices. You can kind of give an overview and not give a lot of details, but just do the overview because there's so much that goes on between today and then. Uh, Or you can go into all the nitty gritty details and then you really risk going over time. So I decided to split the middle. I'm going to give an overview, but still go into enough that I'll probably risk going over time. It just seemed like maybe the worst of both worlds there. I'm not really sure. But what I really want to approach it as in a a particular way, Uh, John W. Peterson is a a famous songwriter. In fact, it's planned that the second service today will have in the special music a song by John W. Peterson. It's not this one in particular. It's one of my favorites. If you don't like it, I think it's my fault. I think Mr. McCullough, I told him about it, and so he picked it, and I love it. So I don't care if you all like it or not. I'm really looking forward to it. But John W. Peterson has a very uh, popular song called The Sound of Trumpets. Uh, Many of us have have sung it in different choirs at feasts and such. And I'm just going to read one particular line from that. The entire song is talking about Christ's return and taking over the earth. Uh, And so in speaking of that, it speaks of seeing Christ come through the, the gates of heaven and descend to earth. And he writes in the song, all the universe is watching as the king, our savior king, descends to take his throne. With the sound of trumpets, uh, trumpets, triumphant is the song. Jesus is coming to right every wrong climax of history awaited so long. What is the climax of a story? If history is a story, his story, uh, what would be the climax I looked up a few definitions. Uh, Climax is the highest or most intense point in the development or resolution of something. The culmination, uh, culmination or apex. It's the decisive moment that is of maximum intensity or is a major turning point in a plot. When an author writes a book, he tends to plant seeds in that book. Sometimes right at the very beginning in the introduction that the rest of the book is simply the development of those seeds, the, the, the building of those chains of experiences and strands, and they build to a climax at the end. Well, history, when you look at it, is simply the story of God's plan unfolding. All of human history, every day, every hour, every minute, every moment, is simply another page in the tale of God's great plan unfolding. And so what I want to talk about today is the sense, it's not going to give you anything new, but I want to talk about the Feast of Trumpets, the time leading up to that, as being the climax of the story. And the title of the sermon today is The Climax of History. The Climax of History. Now, to understand the climax of the book, you have to go back to the beginning. Have you ever watched a television program and you've only it's maybe an hour long program, let alone if it's longer. And you get the last 15 minutes left and your kids come in or I come in and do this to the kids and say, "Ooh, wow, what's going on? It's like, well, we can't explain everything to you. You just missed the first, you know, three fourths or seven eighths or whatever the case is. Uh, well, who's that guy? He's the guy that does the thing. Don't don't worry. What's it? Why is he doing all of this? Please, please go away and just find something else to do for fifteen minutes. Then we'll go to bed and you can watch it. It's on Netflix. It's it's still there. It's frustrating because you come in and you don't know. You don't understand it all. You get it. There's explosions. That's a house of four boys. There's a lot of explosions in what we watch on television. Uh, you know, there's explosions and you get it. And there's a good guy who's doing something. There's a bad guy trying to stop him. But you just don't get all the details. To really comprehend the climax, you have to go back to the beginning and see the foundation that was laid for that. So that's what we're going to do. Turn back to Genesis. To understand the events that unfold in the days ahead of us. Pictured by these days and the events leading up to them. We have to go back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, I won't read the entire thing. And if you were actually in uh, Fayetteville or Raleigh this past uh, Sabbath, a good part of today's sermon you got part of. In Genesis, we have, to summarize things, God made everything right he established the world we were in it was devastated because of the sin of the devil he just recreated everything renewed everything from the state of tohu and bohu and over the course of a week built this beautiful planet restored everything all the life around us everything made beautiful and pristine and perfect and made a garden the garden of eden and planted adam and eve in it and his instructions were simple he said There's two trees here. You know, there's the tree of life and that's nice, but there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that. If you eat that, you're going to die. He gave man work. You know, work isn't part of the curse. Sometimes people think, oh yeah, that's part of man's curse is because he sinned. He's got to work. It's not true. He gave man work before sin. He was told to tend and keep the garden. That's work. We need work. We want work. We want to be productive. That's not bad. But he said, while you're doing all that and you're feeding yourself with the beautiful things I've made for you, don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that, you'll die. The instruction was simple and it was plain. And I used to wonder, and I've thought about that, man, why did God make two trees? If he hadn't made that tree, we'd also be running around naked, right? And just enjoying ourselves and working hard. And we'd all think, well, that'd be pretty awkward, but we wouldn't think it was awkward, you know, we would have had from the tree. But he had to, he had to give us a choice because God wasn't creating pets. God wasn't creating just some creatures to run around on earth for him to care for. He was creating a family. He and the one that became Jesus Christ, as we call them now, the father and the son, as they are now, they were the God family and they wanted a larger family They wanted you in that family. They wanted me in that family. They wanted thousands upon thousands in that family. But to become part of the family of God, to enjoy the existence He enjoys, requires choice. Choices have to be made because without choices, you can't build character. And that was our opportunity to participate with God in His work in us. So there had to be a choice, but he made it plain. He wasn't deceptive. He didn't say, there is a tree over there. Boy, if you were to eat, I don't know what would happen. Ah." He says very plain. If you eat of that, you're going to die. Don't do it. Don't eat of that tree. Well, most of us probably know the story. If not, read it. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The devil shows up, you know, through the serpent. It says in Genesis 3, 1, the serpent was the most subtle of the beast, as it says in the old King James. Very subtle. He deceives Eve, Eve eats from the tree she gives to her husband, and he undeceived, Paul says, also eats, blatantly choosing to sin against God. It was a rejection of God for themselves. You know, Jesus Christ said to his father, not my will, but yours. What they effectively said was not your will, ours. And the results we see in Genesis chapter three. I'm just going to read through them very quickly. The punishments are fascinating. And when you really take the time to think about them, we're going to shoot through them pretty quickly. Genesis three and verse fourteen. It says, So the eternal God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Not only is that literally true with snakes, you know, they bite us, but we can kill them. But this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. We're told later that even though Satan would achieve the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ would have victory over death and would take away everything. Eventually, the devil has uh, prophesied to destroy the works of the devil. But moving on, verse 16 It says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it. You were taken for dust. You are and to dust. You shall return. And it says then later in those passages that he removed them from the garden of Eden, uh, verse 23, Therefore the eternal God sent him, that is man and woman, out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and he placed the cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we have the beginning of our culture. The foundation of mankind's civilization and the foundation of all ...of human history. And what do we see in all of this? We see punishment that makes sense. It may not seem to unless you really think about it. God isn't arbitrary. God doesn't randomly punish. Sometimes in the justice systems of this world, that's what we see. But You know, when God says, you know, a man that robs someone, he needs to restore what he stole. It's not random. God's justice is perfect. And you see that reflected even here. If you look just briefly and consider... What was the devil's great sin? We're told that he was filled with pride. He was not content to be where he was, but you read in Isaiah, and you read in Ezekiel, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, where did he want? He wanted the highest possible seat. He longed to be not just above the creatures of earth, but above the angels, above God himself. He wanted that highest, exalted place. And this was one act of rebellion. uh, Born in that mindset. And so what is his punishment? You will be the lowest of creatures. You desire to look down on all things. You will look up even at the belly of dogs and pigs. It's a very fitting punishment for his crime. Adam chose to rebel against God, his provider. The one that had created all of this for him and said, thanks a lot. I'm going to do things my way then God backs off and says, fine, if you don't need me to help the earth work with you, it won't work with you anymore. You still need it, but you're going to have to fight with it. You're going to have to struggle with it. If you don't need me, if nature is all you need, then nature is all you'll have. And we need God. Hebrew says that Christ upholds all things by the power of his word. We remove his support and we're nothing but fighting with tooth and claw against nature and with each other. And that was what Adam was doomed to. But then you look at Eve and sometimes Eve seems a little idiosyncratic. You know, Eve, because you did this, it sure is going to hurt having babies. Right. It's like, whoa, what in the world? You know, okay, uh, you know, and I have never actually had a baby but i know many who have and i was present for all four uh births in our family every every boy and i you know i miss a lot of subtle things i'm not exactly sherlock holmes but one thing i picked up on is it hurt a lot uh my wife was one of those who who wanted to do them all without without you know painkillers or epidurals up front that would not be me just so you know i would be you know where is it you know is it Jack Daniels or whatever there has got to be something, you know, that makes this go away. Whatever it is that I'm feeling, not her, you know, nerves of steel. And so that that hurt. And that was Eve's punishment. But also incredibly fitting. Because, again, what was God's plan? Why did he make Adam and Eve? It wasn't just to enjoy a garden and to tend and keep it. It was the beginning of a plan to add to his family so that there wouldn't simply be born more humans But there would be born members of the God family. God beings themselves. So that God's own family would expand to countless thousands upon thousands. Without sin, that can be a gentle growing increasingly closer to the Lord as your mind matures. But with sin, that path to birth was still going to happen. But that birth would occur in pain that birth would occur in suffering. For all of us make it to the kingdom of God going through many tribulations. Eve's punishment is very fitting. God's plan would still succeed. There will still be an expanded family of God, but now it's going to involve pain and difficulty and torment. And so Eve's own giving birth reflects that every time a woman gives birth and experiences that pain it is a small microcosm of what this universe has to go through in order to allow God's plan to be fulfilled and the expansion of the family of God we see these things at the very foundation at the introduction of the book we see these seeds planted we also see that Satan is left on the throne of the earth you know man could have overcome that man could have replaced him Instead, man chose Satan over God. Man sinned. And we can leave Genesis, let's read this for emphasis. Turn to Isaiah 59 and make sure we do understand this. Isaiah 59, we can read verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Eternal's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. Sin comes between man and God. Sometimes people wonder, why is it that Jesus Christ had to finish His crucifixion alone? Why was it that God had to forsake him there? Because He paid the full price for sin, and sin includes separation from God. People have have uh, what I say. They've attacked the church for that belief, and said, "Well, no, but that that says like that makes people worry that God will abandon them. It should be exactly the opposite." The reason Jesus Christ went through all of that so that you and I never have to worry about God abandoning us. Jesus Christ paid the full price of sin. And one of those prices is distance from God. And when mankind made this choice, when Adam and Eve made this choice. They chose distance from God when they chose sin over righteousness, when they chose rebellion over obedience, when they chose their way over his way. They chose distance. God, it's been nice having you here in the garden, but we'd kind of like some space. And so God expelled them. You know, James tells us, you know, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know, flee from the devil and and, uh, uh, he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is sort of the opposite. In a sense, they were fleeing God. They were putting distance between them and God here at the very foundation of humanity. But nature abhors a vacuum. And that's true of spiritual matters as well. If God is not in that place of proximity, it won't remain a vacuum. It'll be filled with the devil. It'll be one or the other. It will be one or the other. So here we have at the very beginning of human history, the introduction of really all that is. Every element of civilization's thread in this great story, the foundation is laid here. And if you think about it, the consequences sometimes are so much larger than we consider. What does it mean to evict God from civilization? It's interesting, there's various names of God that we learn things from. I, I want to hit just four for the sake of what's coming later to tie in the climax to the beginning. Uh, God is called a God of truth, a God of truth. Uh, for the sake of time, let me just give you a reference without turning there. But you find that in Deuteronomy 32 and verse four, for example, a God of truth. He's actually called that more than one place, but Deuteronomy 32 and, 32 and verse four is one example. Now, what's the devil called? He's the father of lies. God is a God of truth. The devil's a father of lies. Mankind was essentially choosing the father of lies and not the truth. God is also called a God of peace. Just one example the Apostle Paul calls him that in Romans 15 and verse 33. But you'll find that multiple places in the Bible. I. I Sneezed and found five. Uh, God is called a God of peace. And we see that in Romans 15 and verse 33. That's who mankind was evicting, a God of peace. Who do they have in his place? What is the devil called? A murderer from the beginning. A murderer from the beginning, the opposite of peace. Another couple of neat names for God. Uh, In Genesis 22... He is called Yahweh Jireh or Yahweh Jireh, depending on how YHVH is pronounced. Uh, The eternal will provide. The eternal will provide. That's Genesis 22 and verse 14 when God provides the ram for the sacrifice in place of Isaac. The eternal will provide. Uh, In Exodus chapter 15, it's called a Yahweh or Yahweh or however it's pronounced, Yahweh Rafika. The God who heals you. The eternal who heals you. It's Exodus 15 verse 26. It's where he tells the Israelites, I'm not going to put on you the diseases that I put on the Egyptians. I am your healer. I'm the eternal who heals you. And yet what is the devil called? He's not called the provider. He's called the adversary. He's not there to give to you. He is there against you. He's not called the God that heals. He's called the destroyer. So understand the very foundation of history. Mankind kicked out the source of truth, the source of peace, his provider, and his healer. And that was our beginning. That's the introduction to everything we've seen over the last 6,000 years. It explains every page. It explains every conflict. It explains every trial. It is the foundation of our history. So, with that said, now we can turn to the climax and see how that goes. Let's go ahead and start in Revelation chapter 5. Because where are we in all of this? We've been living through the chapters, right? As every page has turned from the introduction on our way to the climax, we feel every page. We feel how long some of the chapters are. And yet, some of them go so terribly short as well. In Revelation chapter 5, we're not going to read the details here. I encourage you to do so. We have this beautiful scene with the Father on the throne, we have the Apostle John seeing the events in heaven and vision. And the father has a scroll and the scroll's written on the inside. It's written on the outside and scrolls were rolled up sometimes then kind of rolled up and they were sealed. You take some wax or some clay or something that you could actually make an impression in that would harden. And you know, if you ever roll something up, it just kind of sometimes flops out unless it's a map, then you unroll it and it rolls back up it seems. But anyway, uh, you know, you want to keep something rolled back then. And so you roll it up And then whoever the authority is who's sending the message would drip that wax or clay and then seal it with his signet ring. His ring would have unique markings to him to make it clear this is the king. This is the king. Because to read the scroll, you'd have to break the seal. And only someone with the proper authority and worthy title could do that. You know, if you're just some... Joe Blow, and you're taking the scroll and say, well, I wonder what the king had to say. And you break all the seals and read it. And then you give it to the governor wherever it's going. And he sees, well, hey, someone else read read this. Who read this? Oh, I did. I just wanted to know. It's it's really pretty cool. You're really going to like it. Well, you know, off with his head. Uh, You couldn't hide the evidence. Those seals carried authority. And only someone with appropriate authority could open them. So he asked, well, who can open this scroll? The father has this scroll with seven seals. And no one, it says no one in earth or under the earth or in heaven could open the scroll. There was no angel. Uh, there was no uh, uh, these spirit being creatures flying around. There was no one living on earth. There's no one who had ever lived even in the graves under the earth. No one was worthy to open the seal sealed by the Almighty except for one. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Revelator, He was worthy. The only one in all of existence. And so He begins opening these seals. And each seal is an element of prophecy. So let's turn to Revelation. All that happens in Revelation 5. Let's turn to Revelation 6. And I'm going to read through the first four seals pretty quickly. We're going to discuss them as we go through them. So Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. John says, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see another horse, fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And then verse seven, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the fourth, the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades or the grave followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the earth. These are the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, we have the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse, and their various riders. Jesus Christ interprets these in Matthew 24. We're not going to turn to Matthew 24 for the sake of time. But if you have never done that, I highly encourage you to do it. These are the things that are leading up to the trumpet, so I don't want to spend too much time on them. But I remember the very first time I ever heard that sitting just like all of you in services once in the church of God and the minister And I was like, you gotta be kidding. And I I had my hands like one in Revelation six, one Matthew four. It's like, that is amazing. Just look at it. Just one after the other. He interprets all of them and explains them. Uh, He talks about them in order that first he talks about deceptive religion in particular, as we'll see a false Christianity. The white horse. And the rider on the white horse. He talks about wars and rumors of wars. The red horse. He talks about famine and want. The black horse. The rider with the scales. And he talks about pestilence and disease. And we have the pale, sickly horse. He goes right through there in order. Now, someone mentioned to me this weekend they were so excited to hear the white horse explained. Uh, I do want to comment on that a little more broadly because it'd be easy to think this white horse is Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm from Texas. I know the good guys ride white horses, right? So he's got a white horse. Doesn't mention a white cowboy hat, though. But still, uh, he's riding a white horse. He never calls him Trigger or anything, but good guy. Plus, if we read in Revelation 19, it says Jesus Christ rides a white horse. Jesus Christ rides a white horse. So maybe that's what this is. He's certainly going forth to conquer. But the difference is in the subtleties. In fact, keep your place here in Revelation 6, but just turn a couple of pages, and at least in my Bible, it's a couple of pages, to Revelation 13. It speaks of the false prophet to come who will deceive the entire world... And describes him symbolically in verse 11 of Revelation 13. It says, Then I saw another beast, Revelation thirteen eleven. another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. That is, when you looked with your eyes, it looked like the lamb. It looked like Jesus Christ. And you know, I have to admit, let we'll talk a little bit about Pope Francis just... Just briefly, uh, I'm here to announce that I don't know if he's the guy or not. Uh, You know, we know there's going to be a final false prophet. There's going to be uh, someone in the papacy. Is he the Antichrist? We do know he is an Antichrist. John says, yes, Antichrist is coming. But we know now there's many Antichrists. He's part of a system of Antichrists. But let me be up front. There are times when Pope Francis behaves in ways, whether it's for show or sincerely, I'm not here to judge, but they look Christ-like. There's one beautiful picture. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a gentleman that's come up to him and he's suffering from that, uh, that famous what they call elephant man disease. I can't recall the actual name of it, but his, his head is just covered with growths, uh, with, these, with these tumors all over his skull. Uh, and clearly he's suffered In his life, and he comes to Pope Francis, and I don't probably kissed a ring or you know a toe. I don't know anything like that. All I know is from the photos, you see Francis take his head in his hands and just kiss him, and just show him affection and acceptance, and it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and you see him washing the feet of the downtrodden and the impoverished. And again, I'm not saying oh you know it's a publicity. stunt. whatever. What I'm saying is, you see those images. And it looks Christ like it looks beautiful and it looks merciful. And the one coming will look like Christ, but he'll speak like the dragon. You can look at everything, but you have to listen closely. And when you listen to the doctrines, when you listen to the teachings, they're not the teachings of the lamb, they're the teachings of the dragon. It's in the subtle differences In fact, we talk about Revelation 19, Christ is on a white horse, but when you read those details, they're different. Revelation 6 says the rider on the white horse is wearing a crown. Revelation 19 says Christ is wearing many crowns, similar but different. Revelation 19 says Christ comes with a sword, the word of God. The rider in Revelation 6 comes with a bow as his weapon of choice. If it's not a sword, it's not the Word of God. The differences are subtle. It looks like Christ. But you have to pay attention. Jesus Christ warned us. There was some come saying, I am the Christ. But they're going to deceive many. That is the first rider. That is the white horse. And when you think about it, it is a fitting climax. When mankind chose what mankind chose, there was no other climax truly Possible. The seeds for this blossoming in these four horses were planted 6,000 years ago. The first horse is religious deception, the biggest blossoming of the lie. And when you kick out the God of truth from civilization, you will be consumed by the lie. The second horse, warfare on a scale mankind has never seen before. You know, people want to say, ah, these horses, they've been with us all the time. We've always had religious deception. We've always had warfare. We've always had famine. We've always had disease. And that's true. These horsemen have been, in a sense, kind of riding around sort of a long time, but not like this. This is a climactic end time fulfillment of these things. Religious deception on a scale it's never been. The second horse, warfare on a scale mankind has never seen. Yeah, I I just researched a a telecast and an article that that should be showing up. It's kind of weird working at headquarters because I tend to forget what articles we've actually published and what we haven't, you know, because you're always working on, uh, you know, on them ahead of time. But there's one about uh, this kind of transhumanist movement to alter mankind and, and different research that different ones are doing. And some of the most fascinating aspects of that are being done by the military. Uh, you know, the military already has drugs to enable soldiers to work 48 hours straight with no sleep whatsoever and still perform at their top level. Now, I'm sure they crash after that, uh, but they're working on a lot of medicine things. Uh, for instance, uh, in order to help soldiers that come back with tra- uh, trauma, uh, PTSD and other problems, because a soldier has seen things no one else should see, a soldier has done Sometimes horrible things that no one should ever have to do. I won't describe some of the things I've read, but even our soldiers have had to do things that when they come back, they can't get them out of their mind. They can't make it go away. It's always before their eyes and they don't know what to do because man was never designed to do that to another man. And so they're working on drugs. They have some promising drugs. Rather than going through a whole bunch of therapy that may or may not work, you just take this pill. And it takes away the edge. It takes away the guilt. And the thought is, well, that could be something pretty potent to have soldiers that don't feel guilt at what they do. Imagine what more a soldier could do if he weren't burdened by any kind of sense of guilt. Uh, they talk about these exosuits, kind of like Iron Man, but doesn't look quite as good because it's not a movie. Uh, but they talk about these exoskeleton suits that even now, they're only like on the second stage or so. But you look at what Raytheon is doing uh, and and you look at, uh, what's the other one, Raytheon? I can't remember the other. And with this suit, they they lift 200 pounds. And it's like, well, hey, I can lift 200 pounds. You know, I'm pretty strong. Yeah, but they do it effortlessly. It's, it's a suit that's tied, it's, connected, it's strapped around their arms and their legs and they just lift 200 pounds like it's nothing because the suit detects that they're trying to lift something and does it for them. They can run 10 miles an hour and just keep going and going and think, well, I'm pretty fast. I can do a six minute mile or so, but with no exertion whatsoever and carrying a load. And then they showed this demonstration because this is real. This is the stuff that's in like USA Today and such. This isn't sort of secret stuff. And they showed this guy wearing the suit, and they were putting up all these bricks, like a karate guy would kind of, kind of focus, raw, you know. And then he'd go yeah, and then sometimes oh that hurt because he didn't make it. And this guy, they got those boards, and the guy's got the suit, and he's just knocking them in half while he's having a conversation, one after the other, not missing a beat. These things will be deployed. We're talking about warfare on a scale we have never seen before. And that's what happens when you remove the God of peace and leave enthroned the one who was a murderer from the beginning. There's a climax to this coming with the second seal. I could talk about these all day. I need to move on. It's always difficult come trumpets. You got to talk about the difficult stuff. You don't want to talk about death and destruction and all the rest. At the same time, it's necessary. It helps us appreciate the millennium for what it truly is. If I can, if you'll pardon me just one aside. Uh, I was reading the comments uh, uh, from a preacher. He's not a preacher in the church, but he was commenting about a nightmare that he had. And it was a nightmare where all of his family had died. Every child, his spouse, uh, every family member had died. And it was one of those dreams that was so real. That was so real. You just know this has really happened. And he was in such depths of grief in that dream. Until he woke up. And when he realized it was a dream. Not only was he just overjoyed. But every member of his family meant something different to him. Because he had felt such loss that he didn't have them anymore. His children. It's like they glowed with some special glow. His wife was the most beautiful and most amazing. And it wasn't that they weren't that beforehand. But he needed to feel the loss to appreciate it more accurately. Understanding what we have to go through helps us appreciate all the more what's to come. Plus, we have to understand, even though we're talking about cosmic global things, in a large way, this is a picture of our lives. Anytime we start anything in our life, a relationship, a project, conversation... And it's not on the right foundation. There will always be consequences. The, cl- the climax is foregone. There will never be a sin committed that we will not be able to tell God, I regret that choice. And so in a sense, we need to understand this. What the world experiences, we experience on kind of a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis in our own choices. Because none of us here is without sin. Unless anyone is. Raise your hand. Okay, good, great, woo. Okay, I was afraid to had some people I couldn't relate to. Uh, you know, we all make mistakes, right? And so, in a sense, we need to remember there's always consequences. This climax was set in stone the moment Adam and Eve made their choice. The only difference has been when's it going to happen. Personally, speculation. I always feel like I need to pop some kind of Inspector Gadget light out of my head like a siren when I'm doing speculation, so, so you know. Inspector Gadget, some of you still remember Inspector Gadget. Um, personally, I think God's major interventions, like the Tower of Babel, like what I think the Spanish Armada, I think that was an intervention in World War II, has been to prolong to help us last 6,000 years. I don't think we would last that long left to ourselves. So this climax has been set in stone. Let's uh, hurry through the next two. Famine and want, the third horseman. Yeah, you know, I did a back of the envelope calculation. I can't trust it because it was very back of the envelope. Uh but it says there in verse 6 of Revelation 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius was essentially a day's wage, a day's wage. So you work hard all day sweating, maybe getting injured a bit, uh you come to the day and you get a denarius. So based on some recipes I looked up, and I'm not the bread master. I should have consulted with my wife more, but I wanted to do it myself. Um, Imagine your wife calls you and says, hey, honey, we just need one loaf of bread. You know, the kids are hungry. You know, they're out of bread. They're about to eat the siding off the house. We need a loaf of bread. Go get a loaf of bread. Okay, on the way home, I'll pick up a loaf of bread. So you go in, you get one loaf of bread, and that's all you get. And you go to the checkout, and the lady says, oh, okay, a loaf of bread. Ring you up, a $100. A $100. That was my back of the envelope calculation for how much it would cost to get a loaf of bread, if it's a denarius for that much wheat. Now you culinary experts can go back and find, no, oh, you're way off base. But still, uh, it's, maybe I need a bigger envelope for my back of the envelope calculations. But we're promised a time of waste and want and famine like the world has never seen. I remember growing up in the 80s and we had all these ads about uh, children starving in Ethiopia and it just was just heartrending. But imagine that being experienced on a global scale. They've always had famine, but not like what is coming. Finally, the fourth seal is pestilence, the the pale horse of disease. And we're coming on a time when there is disease like there has never been before. Already we're seeing certain strains of various diseases. They used to be common, we knocked them out, but our antibiotics aren't working anymore. They're calling them superbugs. But not yet on the scale that we're going to see. That's what happens when you kick out God who is your provider. When you kick out the eternal will provide, then you face famine. When you kick out the eternal who heals you, the conclusion will always be disease. This climax was inevitable when we showed God to the door. Now, what does it say about these four horsemen? It says in verse eight, it says uh, in the middle, it says, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. You know, some want to say, well, see, that's uh, they're right there. He's just talking about over time, you know, people have died. More than a fourth of humanity has died through history over these things. Disease catches up to people. Heart disease and all the rest. It's talking about a climactic end time moment. Uh, It was mentioned in the sermonette that we... About 7 billion people. A little more than 7 billion people on the planet. What would a fourth of that be? About 1.8 billion people. 1.8 billion people. Another back of the envelope calculation... Uh, Take the deaths on September 11th. Those devastating attacks where many of us were watching television and saw before our very eyes almost 3,000 people die at once. It was a horrific moment. And if I had to have some space up here to represent September 11th, and imagine it was just a little cube Like about a quarter inch on each side. Not even the size of, you know, a die that you would roll for a game, dice or anything, but just a quarter inch on each size, on each side. Again, back of the envelope calculation. Could be wrong. Feel free and show me. But with a quick estimate, 1.8 billion would be those cubes, but filling every space in this auditorium. You're talking about death on earth. On scales that simply have not been experienced. This Syria tragedy with all of these people fleeing for a better life. And for homes. And these Syrian families. It's very easy to be jaded. I pray all of God's people will avoid a jaded callous heart. It's so easy to see these people and think, well, you know, that's their land. That's their fault. Please, I beg of you not to think that way because I guarantee you God in heaven and Jesus Christ are looking forward to the day when they come here and fix that. When a Syrian father doesn't have to look at his son and daughter and think, what kind of life is waiting for them here? What kind of life will they have when I see all these factions eating up my country and people promising nothing but torture and death and warfare? And just understand their mindset to think, I don't care what borders there are. I don't care what risks we will take. I've got to do something for them. Let us not grow so calloused and have such a cold edge to our heart that we can look at that and get caught up in the the politics, whether it's Fox News or CNN, and not feel empathy. And not being, not necessarily agreeing with the solutions. This world has no solutions. But recognizing... That our father feels for them. And Jesus Christ feels for them. And yet as we see these things unfolding on our screen. What's to come puts this to shame. This is nothing compared to that. This moment was founded. The moment Adam and Eve said 6,000 years ago. God we don't need you. Adam and Eve said not your will. My will. But one is coming to write that, to say, not my will, but yours. And that is Jesus Christ. So there are more seals here. Let's move on to seal number five, Revelation chapter six and verse nine. What you've seen so far is what man can do to man here. We sort of enter a different realm, It says in Revelation chapter six and verse nine, when he opened the fifth seal of the seven, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. This is great tribulation. This is the martyrdom of many of God's people. Uh, This is the great persecution of Israel. Again, we don't have time to pour into all the details. I spent a lot there with the first four horsemen. Uh, but do, do, please study that. It doesn't have to be a difficult scripture. Some people say, well, that's proof that people are alive in heaven because here they're alive in heaven and they're crying out. That's kind of like saying that's proof there's going to be real horses riding around and one is red, you know, and he's being ridden by a guy with a sword. Um, that doesn't mean there's really going to be one red horse causing all this trouble. In particular, this, what does that mean? For those for whom it might be a difficult scripture, This is actually a common symbol. This is something God has used before. What was the beginning of all this? It's when Cain slew Abel, right? And what did God say of Abel's blood? He told Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The blood of the martyrs always cries out to God. In particular, it's under the altar. When people ask, well, doesn't this mean people are alive in heaven? I want to say... Well, I hope I'd be living someplace other than under an altar. That doesn't exactly sound you know, like the best place to be lived. Hey, God, do you remember me? Okay, I'll stay under the altar. Under the altar in the temple. And this would have been known by John. This would have been known by those who experienced life in Jerusalem with the temple. That was where the blood of the sacrifice is always pooled. If you think about this, this makes perfect sense. These Christians are being slaughtered like a Sacrifice. And their blood on the ground is crying out to God for the vengeance that is due. we didn't make up that symbol, God uses it in Genesis 4 and verse 10. Feel free and write in your Bibles right next to that like I do. Genesis 4. Uh, Genesis 4 and verse 10. The blood of the innocents always cries out to God. There will be a part of the church protected. We can read about that in Revelation chapter 12. Let's go ahead and do a little bit and get important context. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We have the devil being cast down to the earth. And for the sake of time, we'll just jump to verse 13. It says, now when the dragon saw he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He's persecuting the church. The woman here symbolizes the church. That male child was Jesus Christ. Our elder brother, the firstborn. It says in verse 14, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Mr. Ames explained so much more clearly than I could hear as two and a half years of tribulation and then one year of the day of the Lord. The year of the Lord's recompense for Zion. Uh, that she was protected and nourished from the presence of the serpent. Verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman trying to catch the church that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It says to those who are on earth in verse 12 above It says, therefore, rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them for the devil had been cast out. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. We enter with the fifth seal, the tribulation and the devil's wrath poured out on anyone that God holds in any kind of special meaning or respect, in particular the church, except for those who are protected. Revelation 3 talks about the Philadelphian uh, uh, church, talks about the Laodicean church. And we see those details. Not time to go into it there, but Jesus Christ does tell us to pray we'd be counted worthy to escape these things. It is absolutely atrocious what is going to be done. Uh, Turn back to Revelation chapter 6. Because at this point, with the slaughter of God's people, this assault against His people, and the devil just wreaking havoc in all things, that God reaches a point. Two and a half years later, at the end of the tribulation, God says, enough. Enough. You know, I, I've been told, and so I'm not trying to, to boast, and if anything, I'll talk about the mistake, um, that I don't get angry that easily. My wife has told me that I don't get angry that easily, that I'm pretty pretty laid back, pretty calm. However, eventually I had kids. And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, and I try, I do, you know, I. I but there have been times, I, I, I hate to admit it, but there have been times I have blown up and I have yelled. Um, I'm not generally a yeller, but I have. I have done it. Um, I always feel bad about it and I can always tell when it gets to a certain point because I've been in, I've, I've had a theater experience. I know how to project. Um, and there's a certain thing that my, a certain, I don't know how call it a register. It's not higher. It might be a little lower that my voice will do. And I even feel it in my chest. That my lungs and diaphragm have shifted into a different gear. Uh, and and you can hear it ringing off the walls in a different kind of way. I also hate it when it's in the car because it hurts my ears too. Um, I am not proud of that. That is, frankly, it's not good. I'm not, not boasting about that. Not boasting about that. I always want to be an image of of control. Don't get me wrong. I'm not upset about getting angry. You know, Jesus Christ had righteous anger, and kids give you a chance for righteous anger sometimes. Um, But still, there's just that moment that I usually it results in me apologizing to the kids, not for what they did, but but that you know I wish I'd have been in a bit more control of my voice there. God comes to a point with everything going on in the world that He says enough. That's enough. This will happen no longer apart from my presence. And God himself, the almighty one, steps into human history. Adam and Eve had kicked him out. And with small exception, like for some of us, to further his plan, he has stepped into history. He stepped in at the Tower of Babel. He stepped in, I I believe, at the Spanish Armada. But now he steps in in a way that he will not be called back. And his presence will not be avoidable. And his decisions will be absolute. And we see that reflected in the sixth seal. It says in verse 12, this is after the tribulation, about to begin the day of the Lord. It says, I looked in verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves. And in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand for all that man has done, even for all the devil had done for two and a half years. Only God can truly pull the stars from the sky. Only God can clothe the sun itself in sackcloth and roll up the sky like a scroll and move every single mountain and island out of its place. The entire universe rings with the announcement, God is here. The Eternal One has stepped back into history. And so we have the heavenly signs and then we get to the seventh seal his presence announced we jump to chapter eight and there's something fascinating here Uh, every minute counts I'm not going to do what I've done sometimes Uh, I'll try to do a little bit chapter eight and verse one it says when he opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour silence in heaven for half an hour I'm going to do a brief experiment if you don't mind we're going to have silence complete absolute silence for just 20 seconds I need that other 40 seconds I was going to do a minute but we'll just say 20 seconds so so if you would bear with me I'll, I'll tell you when to start and just just sit quietly and say nothing okay go 20 seconds. In heaven, the headquarters of all existence, there was silence for half an hour. 90 times what we just did. And you look at Revelation 4 and the rest, how busy heaven is. And yet everything grinds to a halt and there is absolute silence for a full half hour. Why? Why? There's a verse that I think is reflected here where God says to a prophet, be silent all flesh before the eternal for he is aroused from his holy habitation. That's in Zechariah chapter two and verse 13. It's a reflection of the gravity of the moment that God himself has been aroused to act let all of existence be silent and in awe and that is the prelude to the seven trumpets the seven trumpets are a big part of what we're talking about today if you look at verse 2 what happens here it says i saw seven angels who stand before god and to them were given seven trumpets Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the... uh, sorry. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. All the prayers of God's people. Every prayer you've ever sent to God that said, Your kingdom come. God, please put a stop to this. Please stop that slaughter. Please heal my friend. Please change all these things. Fix this world. Please take this world out of the hands of the devil and make it yours again. We beg of you, God, to do that those prayers have been heard and they have been collected. And all of that has been thrown to the earth and God's vengeance begins. And so the angels are given their trumpets and we're going to go through the trumpets really quickly. It's actually rather a small part here, actually. Uh, A lot of you look at Revelation chapter 8 and we start in verse 7. It says the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. A third of the trees, you know, you look at this image of the earth from space is this beautiful blue green orb, It's just a gem. No other planet we've seen in our solar system looks anything like it. But imagine a third of that just charred. A third, not to mention all the grass, it says. You know, these wildfires we see in California are nothing compared to what's coming. Can you imagine the smoke that would fill the sky? Only God can accomplish something like this. The second trumpet, verse 8, says, The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships destroyed. I, I found some place try to estimate how many ships are on the sea at any particular moment in time, and I, I do not know how accurate the source was. But a third of those being destroyed would suggest about thirteen thousand ships destroyed. And imagine a third—you know—the the, the oceans are filled with life; they're teeming with life. To have a third of the living things die would be like a third of the ocean itself dying. Imagine a third of the ocean becoming blood. And imagine seeing all of this from space. You've got this charred ember beginning to be crafted out of the continents. And you have the oceans themselves uh, beginning to gain the hue of blood. And there's, there's also, it's, it's a cute name, would be a terrible effect, the Cheerios effect. you ever had a bowl of Cheerios? Insert the cereal of your choice. Uh, and you've got the last few bits left, the last few Cheerios. You ever notice how they start to cling together in like tiny little Cheerio islands floating around? If you ever watch them soil, too, it's like, oh, I bet they're gonna go. Bet they're gonna go. And your wife says, Why are you watching the cereal? And you're like, Well, no, I know, they're gonna And then they, they do, they come together. It's just part of water tension and the rest. You can easily understand what would happen with a third of the living creatures dying. You'd begin to have these masses of bodies, just like islands of corpses. Floating in the sea. It's a terrible thing to think about. The third trumpet, verse 10, says the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Can you imagine living in the face of hail, Fire, blood from the sky, a scorched earth, the waters becoming blood, and now a third of the people dying for what they drink. You don't even know if your next sip of water is going to kill you. Uh, Mankind is getting what mankind at that time has earned. It says in the fourth trumpet, verse 12, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. So the third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. So all of a sudden now, supernaturally, it's so much darker than it would have been because the God of heaven who crafted the lights is using them to make his point. Earth has truly become what mankind would eventually make of it left to himself. A hell on earth. Verse 13, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who were about to sound. Like those weren't bad enough. Uh, the next three angels uh, bring on these terrible, terrible woes. And so we jump to uh, not, look, Daniel chapter 10. Yeah, let's go to uh, the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11. No, sorry. Sorry. The fifth trumpet. Revelation chapter nine. Lost my place. Revelation chapter nine and verse one. It says the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given a key to the bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit, smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They are commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them. Though we've heard earlier people would rather prefer death but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. You know, we are working on weapons that can be made to torture people. We have, for instance, I've seen it on like... Fun news. Like, hey, look what's going on in the military these days. And they illustrate something. And I've heard from soldiers coming back from Iraq that says they are using these things. There's a crowd dispersal weapons where they can take a microwave beam and aim it at you. And you feel like your body is on fire. Because they want to have non-lethal ways to make people move. To disperse crowds. And they show these, these test volunteers standing there. And it's like, whoa! And they just all of a sudden, like they're in agonizing pain and they run. But you can imagine what if you couldn't run? The things that are going to be unleashed by these militaries is something we cannot truly and fully fathom. The sixth trumpet, Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, says, The six angels sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying this to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. You think, man, that's got to be a big army. Yeah. Uh, We have approximately 300 million human beings, breathing human beings in the United States alone. The United States alone. Imagine two-thirds of all of the United States being a warfaring male. Just armies on a vast scale. He says, and I saw the horses in vision. Those who sat on them had uh, breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. You've you got a feel for John here. He's trying to describe these things in vision. He's like,
1: I don't know what to call
0: all of this. Okay, it's a horse, but you know the head's not like a horse head. It's like a lion head. And uh, he's thinking, wow, this is terrifying. He didn't have the vocabulary. To describe what he saw. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. We can read all of this. And we can start to feel sympathy. And think how terrible that mankind has to go through all of this. It just doesn't seem right. I mean, really, should they experience such atrocities? But then you read. In verse 20, it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands. They should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You are getting to a hardened core of mankind. You're getting down to everything that makes us not what we are supposed to be. Even in the face of things that they have said, they know God is intervening in the world. And they still refuse. They still refuse. Woe number three. The seventh trumpet. The one we like talking about. <laughs> the Feast of trumpets. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. We read, then the seventh angel sounded. We know what this is. We know that Paul talks about at the last trump, there will be a resurrection of God's people. We'll hear about that in the special music plan for the second service. This is that last trump. Seven of seven. The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It says after this song is sung by the 24 elders, verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. You know, it's fascinating to me. I see so many parallels between Jesus Christ and His His reign and rule and the lives of David and Solomon. And it's interesting, there was a time when the ark was brought into Jerusalem. And you have the king, and he's dancing before the ark, leading it into Jerusalem. And it says there are shofars being blown. And here we see the king, the son of David, coming to earth in glory. And we see indeed the Ark of the Covenant, picturing the throne of God behind Him. And we hear the blowing of shofars. The purpose for which God created mankind to begin with, not for suffering, not for pain, not for difficulty, not for trial, not for sickness, not for disease, not for war, not for murder, but to build a beautiful family. That would last forever with people knowing nothing but joy and peace and eternity in the very life of God forever. For the first time since that day, 6,000 years ago, the family of God expands. And from that point on forever, it is no longer two. But it is so many more. Thousands upon thousands. We know from Romans chapter 8, I won't take the time to turn there, that the entire creation is begging for this time. Is looking to this time. What it will see is deliverance. The liberty of the revealing of the children of God. Every rock, every tree you see, every star in the sky, every nebula, every galaxy, every planet they discover. All of it begging for us To be there at that seventh trumpet. We'll just look at one more verse. Turn to John chapter 16. These days are hard. They're hard to think about. They're not fun. But they are important. If you recall Eve's punishment... It said that she would have pain in childbirth because the world to come would still be born, but it would be born through great difficulty. Jesus Christ says in John 16 and verse 21, John 16 and verse 21, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy. That a human being has been born into the world. That is what that last Trump represents. And may God work so that we hear its sound soon.